With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hi, everyone. It's the Tennis.com podcast. Back, uh, Steve Tigner and myself, Ed McGrogan, uh, took one of our extended holiday breaks. I would, I would say on our behalf uh, on the podcast is obviously long overdue to get back into the swing of things here, and obviously the 2016 season is, is pretty much upon us. Uh, today is December 29th, and you know balls will be hit uh, at pro tournaments in just a few days. Um, there's a lot of preview work on the website on tennis.com, of course, and we've you know we've discussed players individually uh, many times. What we also have will have coming some various roundtable questions that we put to uh, you know various editors and writers. So. You know, check those out as the as the new year begins, and I think this podcast, Steve, I think I'd like to really talk about just some more overall themes of of the 2016 season. Um, it's a you know it's a basically you know is it a is it a continuation? I think this is a question perhaps that we have for for every season. Is that are we? It's almost at the end of every year. It's almost hard to think of something changing the status quo of of the previous season. And we've really been asking that question for a long time on both tours. The men and the women have really been, you know, ruled by a very select few players. I mean, overall, as as you enter this new year, before we get into some specific things, you know, are you kind of, you know, how do you think about that uh, as we enter 2016? Yeah, I think you know when you when you imagine this year, you don't see it. It's hard to imagine it as a transitional year or anything really new happening or a new group of players appearing. I think you look at it as at least at the very top. You look at it. You know, you have to think it's going to continue as it was, especially on the men's side with Djokovic. He just seems so solid at number one. Without you know the fact that his main challenger is is going to be thirty five this year. And there's really nobody, you know, Djokovic is one of the younger guys in the top 10. Just that fact alone makes you think there's not, it's really hard to imagine a big shift. We've, we've looked for one for years and one hasn't come. And, and you know, now it almost seems, it almost seems like it's not worth really speculating about any changes or changing of the guard happening on the men's side. The women's is maybe a little more, you know, Serena is as dominant as Djokovic, but maybe there's a little more flux there possible um within the top 10 last year you felt like you know there were the top 10 was struggling a lot there were you know it was sort of unclear as to who really was there after serena um we'll see if that can be shored up and whether you know whether serena can can continue the way she has been i I think that is i think it's going to be more difficult for her than it is for djokovic for just for the simple reason she's five years older 
Um, so maybe there's a little more of a possibility of something different, um, some new winners on the women's side. I think when it comes to transitions and, and more of the better word maybe just really changes is, um, and I think this specifically relates to Serena is, you know, you can never really see it coming, but, but once it happens, you know that it has happened and, and there's no question about it that something has altered. Um, I, I really kind of compare it to other sports we've seen, you know, look at like Peyton Manning, for example, in the NFL and how it really doesn't seem like that long ago that, um, you know, he's throwing 50 touchdowns. He's still a, a top five pick in fantasy. And, you know, now it, Peyton looks, and, and this has a lot to do with, you know, it has a lot to do with age, of course, injury. But, you know, we would have never predicted something, a, a fall this, this you know, deep from a player like that. And I think that goes for teams in, in various sports and players. And, and I think that's really, you know, what keeps us in a way kind of, glued to sports so much is really this, you know, we think we know everything and, you know, it's, and it's, you know, it, it's really our jobs to kind of forecast what we, what we know, what we think we know, but, but until you really kind of see it all play out, um, you know, it, it's, it's largely an unknown. And I think we'll, we'll still get inklings of that in, in 2016. I think, you know, I think for the women's side, it's, you know, someone like, like Garban Muguruza perhaps is is one that a lot of play a lot of people have talked about. Um, she has she is you know we're talking about her before this podcast. She'll be continuing on her coaching stint with Sam Sumick, and I think that was a very you know there's a lot of players who've changed coaches that we'll be getting into into the new season. But for someone like her and Sumick, you know that perhaps is, is something that you know may be one of the biggest stories of the year yeah just thinking about Serena as well um, as compared with with Djokovic is I think you know just looking at where they are in their careers I think Djokovic is still really focused on being number one for the foreseeable future I'm not sure if Serena at this point if that's as much of a goal or is just getting past Steffi Graf in the slams winning two more and passing her I feel like you know, that may be more of what Serena focuses on. She took that time off at the end of last year. Um, maybe it's just I'm going to really do a last push to get past Steffi. Um, you know, that may be the next thing. Whereas Djokovic is just all about all-around constant domination. And maybe that'll be – maybe that mindset will be the difference between them. And as far as Muguruza, that's, that's true. We didn't mention her as – unlike the men's side, nobody really rose up at the end of the year, the way she did on the women's side, and really is somebody that everybody's looking for. As as you know, nobody would be surprised if she became the next new Slam winner. Uh, you know, in the women's side. Yeah, and um, and like I mentioned with her, you know, she'll be with uh, Sumik in her corner. You know, there are a number of players who you know. This is one of the talking points as we go into a new year. Is various changes in the uh, in the coaching arrangements of of players. Um, one of the bigger ones, you know, on the women's side would be, would have to be Madison Keys and Lindsay Davenport. That seemed, uh, like such a natural pairing. And I, and I think that was really just more a, an effect of, of Davenport not being able to or wanting to commit to the full-time grind of that. She was, you know, Keys was already coached really with, um, with, with 
Davenport's husband as well as in sort of a, a dual capacity there. But you know where you know where Madison goes. Um, I think certainly she has kind of a, a wide spectrum where she could land on, uh, depending on really the you know the experience so far of a very young career, but already pretty prosperous in some respects. Uh, but there's still you know a lot we'll need to see from her week to week, not just at the slams. Yeah, that's a big one, and that was a surprise. I think they wanted to stay together. Lindsay, you know, from, from all appearances, it seems that she just couldn't commit to the amount of travel. She has four kids. Um, she and her husband couldn't really commit to being full-time all the time with with Madison. I think Madison and, and Lindsay also felt like she needed somebody there. You know, she wants somebody with her throughout the tour. Um, Jesse Levine is her new coach, and they're – they they are friends, you know. It's a different relationship. Lindsay was a is a was a mentor and an ex Grand Slam champion, a sort of a super coach. Now she goes to somebody who's more of a contemporary, just a little older than her. Somebody she's grown up practicing with and, and has been friends with. It sort of reminds me of when Andy Murray went. He had Brad Gilbert as his coach, and then went to a group more of a group of guys who were more more like contemporaries, more friends of his, more, you know, he, maybe he wanted more, he felt like he wanted some camaraderie, you know, camaraderie and... on the tour. And maybe, you know, Madison has learned from a slam champ. She probably had more to learn, but, but here's a different kind of, you know, maybe try a different, a little, maybe something a little more relaxed. That, and she, you know, she's, she's talked about how she wants to focus on having a really consistent season week to week. She hasn't been able to do that. She's had great results, obviously in big tournaments, but, but not, week in week out she had injuries i think she wants you know i think maybe she wants to she wants somebody who's going to help her and she's going to want to feel comfortable around all the time is going to be there all the time and they can work together to to get her more consistent um over the course of the year and you know so we'll see i think it's it's a big change and on the surface you know it doesn't seem like a great change from lindsay davenport to jesse Levine, who's never hasn't really coached anybody but yeah, the one thing though, the one thing that I will say about you know a player like Levine, and this really goes for, I think a number of players who, and you bring up Gilbert. This is I'm not going to I don't want to compare the two in in uh, actual playing accolades and talent, but you know when Gilbert went uh, and and coached Andre Agassi. It was it was from a perspective of someone who was recently on the tour, even though this is not the same gender, of course. I think that there is something perhaps to be said about someone who has been immersed in the week-to-week of just the really what it takes on to grind away at on the tour, you know, the travel that comes with it, just really the lifestyle that you can really only, I think, communicate if, you, if you've been there yourself. And I think if been there fairly recently which is you know the case with Levine there um that I think in a way can bring us to where we are with Roger Federer and Ivan Lubitsch this is something that you brought up I think alluded to in your piece about the two is that Lubitsch the biggest takeaway actually was that you know Lubitsch in 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 many respects has is seeing the tour from from Federer's eyes in a way he was basically a contemporary of his in uh, the early to mid, the mid 2000s, really, Um, you know, Federer going from Stefan Edberg, you know, one of the many so-called legendary coaches uh, going, transitioning to someone 
with, I think, a much different eye for the game. He also recently recently coached um, Milos Raonic last year and has obviously seen and scouted many of the players that, that Federer will be, has faced for years and will be facing this year. Um, so I think that sort of current recent player dynamic, uh, you know, maybe that's perhaps one of the next sort of trends going on in coaching. But I think it's, you know, it's very interesting to see how Keys will do and how Federer and Lubacic will do together. Yeah, I think Federer, I think the biggest thing with with Federer and Lubacic, the first thing, you know, he, I think he wanted to keep continue with Edberg, but Edberg didn't want to do it, um, didn't want to keep doing it, hadn't really planned on doing it long term. I think for Federer being... The fe- you know being 34, having you know how who knows how much more time on tour, but but not a lot. I think of the fact that he knows Lubitschik and he knows him pretty well, and he's known him for a long time. That aspect was was um, I think that was attractive. The he didn't have to build up a new relationship. You know he already knows this guy pretty well, and I think you're right. I think having played against it's a whole different thing when you when a when a player's played against somebody else. Um, you know Edberg. Edberg and Federer were a great combination, but Edberg hadn't he played a different brand of tennis. You know, he did played in a different era, he played a different style. Lubitschik played Lubitschik is a guy with a big serve but a baseline game. Not obviously nothing like Federer's talent, but he had to was a smart guy and had to think his way through against a lot of the players that Federer's been playing and and will be playing. Um, and I think just the the comfort in the relationship and that they they won't have to spend too much time getting to know each other. That'll be a big thing, and you know we'll see whether Lubitschik has some ideas for, especially how to beat Djokovic. It wouldn't seem to, on the surface, he was he was two and seven against Djokovic. Um, I think he was four and fourteen against the big four for his career. So, you know, we'll we'll see what kind of he, help he can bring he can bring Federer. Lubitschik is a very insightful guy too. I think uh, he's a great uh, Twitter follow also. <clears throat> Excuse me, and uh, should be noted that uh, Federer. I believe you probably were at this tournament in Indian Wells when Federer won the title over Lubacic in the final, beat him with a net cord winner. If I'm not mistaken, this is one of the one of the the uh, sort of most deflating championship points I can remember in the Federer era. But he did that. Uh, they'll so they'll go on, you know, together here. I think the point about Djokovic is pretty interesting. You know, seeing that Lubacic, of course, has played him. He's got to have some sort of, I think. A bit of a deeper knowledge too. You have, you know, both of them Eastern European players. Um, so I think that's interesting because really, you know, Djokovic was really the only hurdle that Federer was unable to clear last year. It would have been, really, could have been one of his better years in in, in quite some time had Djokovic not, you know, really run over everybody, including Roger there. So, um, you know, that's going to be really, I think. Uh, you know, looked at with a microscope right away to see how that turns out. Um, you know, we'll get into, you know, while we're on the subject of Federer, I think, and we, we'll still talk about some other coaches here, but, you know, the other big change for Roger was that he's really cut back pretty much all of his clay play in 2016. He will only play Roland Garros on clay. You know, really has has put away the training and the grind necessary for the various Masters events, you know, Monte Carlo, uh, Rome, Madrid. That's all gone in favor of um, more hardcore play, uh, more grass play especially. 
you know, this has to do with the Olympic schedule this year as well, though. But, but I think it's a it's a very it's a very good call for Federer to do. Uh, you know, none of those Masters events are certainly, you know, m- would be classified as as must wins for him at the, at this point in his career. I think they're all really just kind of bonuses and and certainly help the ranking, of course. Yeah, you think of you think you mentioned Serena earlier as someone who is really sort of passing up the week to week play in favor of going for the slams. And I think you can make the comparison to Federer here as well. Yeah, Federer's this is a real sign of you know a sh- of a real shift um, towards the you know into the latter stages of his career. He's he's pretty much jettisoning the whole part of the season. Um, I don't think he ever would have thought of that as recently as a as a couple of years ago, but, but each year it did, you know, in a sense it may, you know, it does make sense. Um, each year you see him, he would come do pretty well in Australia, make a run at Indian Wells. And then, you know, in the recent time, and then suddenly he'd have to shift over to clay, which really wasn't his, you know, he, he would make his goals to, to, you know, to, to in general, to win Wimbledon. That was his number one goal. And suddenly he had to spend two months playing on a completely different surface, pretty much right before Wimbledon. So, you know, in that sense, each time the clay season came around, it felt like his season kind of got stuck, um, you know, lost a lot of the momentum. So now he'll just focus on, he'll focus on Wimbledon and um, obviously the Olympics. That's, I'm sure that's what he's working towards and, and being rested for. Um, we've talked in the past about how this, the people speculated that this, tournament in Rio he would retire after that or retire this year once he played one more Olympics I don't think I don't think that's true anymore I don't I think he's going to continue but it is a big event for him you know it's probably the last Olympics he's going to play um yeah and he's going to go uh probably you know singles doubles and mixed you you would think he's going he is going to play with um Martin Hingis in the mixed you know you have to think at a certain point him and Stan will uh, defend their, uh, not defend, but uh, they'll, they'll go for another gold. They are previous gold medal double doubles uh, winners in 2008 in Beijing. Um, so you know, there's a ton on the plate, you know, for for Federer just at that Olympics too. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's. But it is interesting that that. He's making this big shift. He's also going playing a, a little more on grass. He's going to play in Stuttgart on grass. Um, but yeah, it's putting a lot on Wimbledon and the Olympics. That's that's for sure for him. Yeah, and um, you know, overall, you know, the Olympics I think is is such a is such a big part of this 2016 season. I think you know we've heard players from Federer to Venus Williams to others really targeting this specific games for for such a long time for for years now um it's not like this has crept up on anyone i think it was seen as a milepost uh, you mentioned with you know would this be federer's you know really last of you know was he playing solely to get another shot at a gold medal it's really the only thing that he hasn't won in his career you know, Venus Venus has made mention of that too on the women's side as this was a motivating event to play. She's always, you know, she's always had the she's always done well in the Olympics and is and has always really targeted things. You know, her her career I think around them. Um, so I think in a sense, you know, we've been talking about Rio for for quite a long time now, and 
um, you know, I think as, as the year builds on, we're going to be, that's going to be even more pronounced. You're going to be seeing um, certainly a lot of singles players will be, you know, dabbling in the doubles draws, you know, not, you know, Indian Wells is doubles draw, which is famous for its, its field is probably even, you know, more stocked this year. You'll see it, I think, um, in some warm-up events, particularly maybe in, in Toronto and Canada for both tours, which is the tournament that immediately you know, precedes Rio. Um, and it's just interesting to see where this event, you know, it, it's, it's an, it's a far-flung Olympics from where the tours go at that time. It's in South America. Uh, it is a hard-court event. It, you know, you may think that um, being down there, it's a clay event, but really a lot of the South American tournaments in recent years have shifted over to hard courts. I think by pressures from where the tours calendars are, maybe the, the tastes of players, but I think also because of this tournament, and uh, you know, it's it really just shows I think the the shadow that the Olympics continues to cast um, on the tour and on athletes in general. So I think it's a, you know I think it's a great event. I think 2012's games were particularly memorable for a lot of reasons, and I think this one should be you know one of the signature tournaments of 2016. Yeah, 2012 was the best tennis Olympics yet. Part of it that was that it was at Wimbledon. It was at a great location. Um, We'll see what if you know about this one. Um, I think it's almost to the level where it's like a it's past a Masters now. You almost feel like it's a it's a it's a sort of a not quite a slam, but it's a tournament unto its own. It's like a slam now. The fact that people are playing singles, doubles, and mixed. Nadal's talking about playing with Muguruza. Federer's going to play with Hingis. It's you know the two tours really do this together. Um, it's almost could, feels like a model for for what a Grand Slam could be. Uh, you know, going forward, if you you look at, you know, if you want to look at something like making them have the men play two out of three, if they're going to play something like doubles and mixed, it really, it's almost like an ideal sort of one week dual gender event where everybody is together. So yeah, it's going to be, it it should be great as long as Rio is, you know, everything's ready, <laughs> everything's good in Rio in general. Yes, good good point with the two out of three sets too. That's always something to remember. For the men there, um, and you know, even though we, uh, and you still get epics though with it. You know, remember, you remember Federer Del Potro four years ago there. So there's there's lots of good um, potential for this. Um, going back to just a couple more of the the coaches that that we you know we could mention here. I think worth mentioning. Of course, this has been around for a little while. Um, both these really have. Simona Halep going with Darren Cahill. Um, I, I think I think I'm more most interested to see just what Cahill brings on a full time basis. Um, and I think just because you know, for the sole reason that many of us know feel like we know Cahill so well because you know he's been talking to us on ESPN for much of the past five six years during the Slams and Masters events. You. You certainly get a sense of, of the kind of guy he is, um, you know what his philosophies are. We've seen him occasionally when he's done work with Adidas player, um, you know the arrangements that he has, and that's how he's you know worked with with Halep before. But taking this to a full time uh, position, I think um, I think that's one of you know really one of the most in- interesting ones to see. You know, is this perhaps really you know a boost that could kind of 
put Halep to where she needs to be to, to really finally get that signature win, which I think at this point has to be described as a slam win. Um, the other one you and I were talking about before was, you know, Grigor Dimitrov, someone who, you know, similarly could use kind of a, a, a bit of a boost, really a reset button after last year. It just was not, nothing really had had happened for Dimitrov that we, we were expecting it to. Um, you know, the only thing we thought would happen was that his time with Roger Rashid after a few months of just inconsistent result with, results would kind of run its course. That's exactly what happened. And he takes on um, Juan Martin Del Potro's former coach, Franco Devine, who, you know, another guy we've who we've seen before, haven't in a while because of Del Potro being out. But, you know, both of those two players, I think, um, where, you know, we're, Perhaps we're not exactly sure where both of those two really end up this year. I think the coaching arrangements in and of, them, in and of themselves are pretty uh, interesting talking points. Yeah, I think Halep, I think the big question, you know, with, with for Darren or any coach of Halep is how to how to really get the her emotional best from her in every match because sometimes you get it and sometimes, you know, she'll even admit you, you don't get it. She She can get negative fast. How do you... How do you bring that out and and help her? You know, obviously, she has the game and the talent really to beat just about anyone. Um, you know, how do you keep her from keep her believing in herself? Keep her from not being you know I think such a perfectionist on court and getting so down if if, if she makes some mistakes. I don't know. That's I think it's a it's a big challenge. Um, and you know, Cahill, she definitely respects Cahill and has liked what they've what they've done and how they've worked together. So, you know, that's all positive to start. Um, with Dimitrov, he definitely needed somebody new. You know, he he needs something new in his game. He seemed like he was going through the motions a lot last year. He had, you know, he finished things with Rashid. He had to break up with Sharapova, which he said affected him. Um, and he just seemed like treading water, really, through most of the year. Not a lot of fire in, in his game or not a lot of emotion in his game. I think Davin, judging by his work with Del Potro, he's more of a long-term guy than Rashid. Seems like a guy who gets a lot out of somebody quickly, but then, you know, the the relationship ends fairly quickly. Davin's had a long tenure with Del Potro, and so you feel like maybe he's a little more, um, you know, a little more level-headed day to day. Can really build something with Dimitrov that that lasts. Like, you know, Davin has been it's mostly good things. You know, he he seems like a a good guy and a good coach, and has has had a lot of success, you know, with, you know, he didn't have a great game, but had success with that game as a player. Um, so I think that's, I, I do think, I think we can look for something better from Dimitrov with, with that. Yeah. And I, I'm going to kind of close maybe the, you know, we have one more topic I'd like to get to after all this, but, um, you know, looking ahead to this year, it, two of the two players who I, I'm perhaps most curious of all where they end up um, because I think they could end up almost anywhere um, is Jack Sock and Nick Kyrgios. And both of these two, you know, were certainly newsmakers in, in, in the past year, past couple of years for, for a variety of reasons. But, um, you know, anytime, anytime you see what Kyrgios brings, and I think it's very, I think it's great, you know, purely from a theater point of view that we're going to see him right away in his element in Australia. Um, you know, 
I'm certainly with the crowd, I think, just, you know, really backing him just in spite of everything, before, you know, that happened last year. But I but I think Kyrgios, in, in, in what was such a, such a wild year, you know, starting from, you know, getting another signature win over Federer, a match, a five match point saving win in a, in a big event, you know, to the, really the self-inflicted turmoil that he put on him and everything in between the crazy hair and, and the crazy shots. I mean, I mean, this guy is, whether you like him or not, is going to be one of these stories, I think of this year. And I think, you know, for Sock is I'm I'm kind of curious to see when, when he or if he really makes his next step, his next move, because you know, really, it's it's we've seen a lot of Americans come and go and, and kind of tantalize us with a few nice little runs or stretches, but really, no one has supplanted John Isner as really the top guy in this and. And that's a lot of credit to him. He's he's actually had one of his best years last year. But but I think you know when you watch Sock, especially when you see him up close, as I did a couple times last year, um, he's got just an amazing game in his own right. Um, and you know now has a few years of experience on tour. Um, and I think both you know both these two really to me two of the more interesting guys for for 2016. I don't know if you have anything to say about them or if there's any other players that kind of come to mind a little more off the radar. Yeah, I'm curious about Sock too. He's got the big forehand, one of the biggest, and he's really quick and he's got a good serve. Those are the things, you know, that you look at when you look at a young player that he that a guy needs to have and so many so many guys who have a lot of things, they don't have that kind of athleticism, that kind of just natural power. He's got it. Um I think also he can get negative fast. It's a more of a, I think it's more of a mental battle now. That's the next step to stay in matches that might not be going his way. Um, I don't know if I've seen, you know, he hasn't been great at that so far. But, but um, I think he started to believe in himself last year. I also like the fact that he's good on clay, so he's not going to disappear right, during right, right, part right. of the year like a lot of Americans can. Um, so I, you know, I. I think you could see something pretty good from him. I think with that, his raw skills, you know, that the sky, you know, his his upside is pretty high. Um, Kyrgios, you just don't know whether he's always going to sabotage himself. Um, he had, in a way, he hasn't shown any sign, hasn't shown a sign of changing much, despite all that's happened. He's, you know, he's even says going into the new year, he's not really planning to change he's got to play his game he likes to play on the edge he likes to chat you know ch- you know he likes to a lot of chatter he likes to be emotionally engaged with the audience and i just don't know whether that's that hasn't really you know that can help him but it's also been his downfall he's, he gets distracted that's distracts himself and and sort of blows up the match i don't know whether that's i don't see that changing necessarily this year maybe in the long term He'll, that'll change, but but um, I don't know. I haven't seen a sign of it yet. I, you know, it'll be definitely interesting to see what he can do if he's if he's can you know keep himself together mentally. He's definitely is, is a future slam winner. Yep. Yeah. And uh, you know, otherwise we may be just seeing the 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 beginning of the next guy, Monfils, really, in a way, too. Yeah, so, right. Maybe he's more on that trajectory. I don't know. Yeah, yes, quite a, traje- quite a, a trajectory there. Um, 
So I wanted to close this with someone we will not be seeing in 2016. And, uh, you know, on the tennis court, I should stress, not in not in any other meaning, but uh, but uh, right. earlier this week, Robin Soderling called it a career. He is someone who we have not seen for a number of years um, dealing with injury. He had mono for a while that really sidelined him. Um, but I think it's uh, it's it he deserves a proper send off and and we'll give it to him here um to me what i would say about Soderling you know he's one of the only guys who over the you know the in this in this really era of dominance by Federer Nadal Djokovic Murray he's really one of the few players who was able to take the bat out of their hand and um you know i of the matches that I remember uh, of this of this era, you know, a lot of them are going to involve actually of all players Soderling. You, there's clearly the you know the win over Rafa at Roland Garros in 2009, just you know his ultimate um, his ultimate masterpiece really, which was just an exercise in you know great you know just a, a a devastating serve. Really, the forehand is is the most impressive thing. It's just, I don't think anybody, you know, with maybe the exception of Del Potro, just has this catapult swing that just can really just hit the ball by anyone, no matter how fast they are, how good of a defender they are. Um, no one really had the game that that I, you know, it was a one of a kind game. It was a he was a one of a kind player. I think he. You know, he obviously had. I think he got clearly on a lot of players' nerves was with how he played. I think you know he had a famous match with Nadal in Wimbledon in 2006, I believe, which um, stretched over a few days and and, um, and really just kind of showed, I think, the playbook to getting under Rafa's skin in a way. And it was really perhaps a, a poor, you know a portent of things to come down the road. Um, you know, I saw Soderling, you know, one time on a side court in Toronto after a, a rain delay, which forced matches like really good matches onto all the courts there. And, you know, to see the guy up close, to see the kind of shots, you know, you can't even see the ball the instant, he, you know, it makes even close contact with him. So um, one of the players, I think, overall that we will remember besides the big four in this era, um, that's what I would really take away from, from Soderling's career. Yeah, Soderling, I think he's really will be remembered for one match, for beating Nadal at the French Open. That just became the fact that nobody really thought Nadal, nope, Nadal had never lost, and he wouldn't lose for another five years afterwards. Um, that's, the, you know, that's where his name will be remembered in in beating Rafa, um, and basically in sort of doing something that some people, it seemed at the time was almost impossible, um, to really standing up to Rafa over three out of five sets on clay. Uh, he also, you know, you kind of forget, or at least I forget, he also ended Federer's streak of 23 straight semifinals at Grand Slams. The following year, he made two French Opens finals in a row. He made it to the top five. He was an interesting guy in that he, um, he started out as somebody, you know, I think anybody who was watching maybe 12 years ago or so would have thought this guy's going to the top 10. I remember seeing him in the qualies at the U.S. Open. A big guy. He was bigger. You know, he was, he was like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, but at that time he was especially big. You know, he was, the game got bigger with him. Um, 
just just crunching balls in the in, in the qualifying in qualifying. He thought this guy is going somewhere, and then he stagnated for a long time. I think he was, you know, he got he got, you know, he got frustrated easily. Um, didn't really have a complete game, but, you know, belted the ball, but but um, you know, the game went more to to defense and speed, and he that was those weren't his strong points. But I think I think the best thing about him was he really had no fear of the top guys. He maybe he he lost to them most of the time because he wasn't as good. You know, he wasn't as polished. He missed more, but. He never felt like he went out there with, with. Um, he always felt like he went out there believing he could win and acting like he belonged with them. And the fact that he beat Nadal and you know, ended Nadal's streak at, at French and ended Federer's semifinal streak that shows you what that he did have that that sort of you know that ability to believe that he could do he could beat anybody. Um, and that's the one thing I think that was different from from the other guys in in that year, the guys who weren't in the Big Four. That he he showed that he, you know, if you do believe in in and and um, believe you belong with them. Compare him to a guy like sure. Thomas Burrich, for example. This is which is right. I think a good you know a, a a classic case of you know two players that have really on the face of it similar games, but you know look at really the results and really the confidence, and you know I think that's what you're mentioning there, but. Uh, Burrich, yeah, you can't. I mean, Burrich is the better player. He'll go down as the better player, and he was. But um, Soderling gave us, you know, a couple thrills that, that Burrich hasn't managed to pull off. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's worth uh, closing on that point. Um, like I said, many many uh, preview elements continue for 2016, and we really get you know going you know fairly shortly with events um, in the Middle East in India and of course down in Australia so set your alarm clocks if uh, if you're up for that and uh, you know the Australian Open will be here pretty much in about three three four weeks and uh, with that we will say goodbye to 2015 welcome in 2016 tennis season um, we'll be back of course Steve Tigner and Ed McGrogan here on the tennis.com podcast You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.